I'm Jim Parity, and I'm the current head of Comparative Media Studies. Uh, the program is alive and well, uh, thanks to a lot of different people, including David, uh, Henry, William, who is uh, away right now, uh, William Muricchio. Uh, William actually is the person who invented the topic and came up with uh, some of the early drafts of it. So uh, depending on whether you like this year's topic or not, uh, you have William to thank. I want to thank the committee, which uh, the program committee, which worked very hard on this area of uh, consideration. And that, that includes uh, David himself, Noel Jackson, Nick Montfort, Ed Schiappa, and David and, and, and myself. So we, we've been meeting off and on for, I don't know, off and on for several months. But uh, these committee topics do emerge out of uh, a lot of uh, fairly intense discussion. Uh, and we, of course, will be interested in suggestions that you might have for the next round. Uh, I also, as David did yesterday, but I want once again to thank Brad Sewell, who puts a tremendous amount of effort in making sure the conference runs, and uh, Brad's done a great job. Uh, we were all uh, pleasantly surprised at the food last night. It was, uh, we weren't expecting it to be quite as uh, sumptuous. So anyway, thanks, Brad. This is a free conference, I think, as you know. Uh, it's uh, an offering of uh, the People's Republic of CMS, and certainly we will be trying to maintain that status, but we can't guarantee it because uh, we have to go up and talk to deans who say, how come you're doing a free conference? And we say, well, <laughs> it's part of the spirit, but uh, it is possible that there will be uh, uh, some kind of a fee in the future, whether next year, uh, whether two years from now or after that, I don't really know. Uh, I also want to mention before we start that uh, there will be a, uh, we are considering a publication of papers from the conference, and this requires us to get materials from you fairly quickly. Uh, the plan would be, uh, if you're interested, for you to express this interest to us uh, and to give us some kind of a draft, early draft, with a commitment, as David says, a moral commitment, to uh, complete the work by the end of August. So we will be sending out a, not a notice on this uh, probably early next week to all the conference attendees. So if you want to wait until then, that will be fine. Um, Okay, so let me talk a little bit about the session here. We are going to have, we have four respondents um, and, uh, uh, or discussants, I should say. Uh, they're going to talk about their impressions of the conference. Each one gets 10 minutes or so to talk, and uh, then I shut them off, and then we will have a discussion. Uh, we're going to start with Rod Coover. Uh, I should say ahead of time, this is an extraordinary panel. They represent an interesting snapshot of media studies. Uh, we've got an artist. We've got an educational scientist. We have an internet scholar. And we have a serial web entrepreneur. So this really covers a lot of the different territories that a lot of people are interested in. Uh, 
they all, of course, have various types of backgrounds and professional this and professional that. But it is interesting how they express themselves and how that captures the spirit of this conference, which really ranges across quite a broad, multidisciplinary range of topics and subjects. And so uh, Rod Coover makes films, interactive cinema, installations, web works. He publishes in fields of the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Some of his latest projects include the interactive series Unknown Territories about exploration of the American West. This is a beautiful series. Some of you have probably been in these spaces, so it's, it's well worth visiting. Uh, he's also editor of a book, a recent uh, excellent book called Switching Codes, Thinking Through Digital Technology in the Humanities and Arts. Uh, Theo Hug is professor of educational sciences at the Institute of Psychosocial Intervention and Communication Studies at the University of Innsbruck and coordinator of the Innsbruck uh, Media Studies Research Group. These are very people who take education very, very seriously and are looking at uh, a lot of different uh, ways in which education is being shifted, changed by internet technologies uh, in what people want to do with them. His areas of interest include media education, media literacy, e, uh, micro-learning, and theories of knowledge. He's particularly interested in knowledge dynamics and learning, uh, uh, learning processes. Uh, some of his recent work focuses on what he calls instant knowledge, bricolage, and didactics of micro-learning. Interesting topics. Molly Souter is member of Comparative Media Studies and the MIT Center for Civic Media. Before coming to MIT, Molly worked at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard and as a freelance narrative designer and game critic in the indie game scene. Molly's research focuses on cultural and sociopolitical analyses of technology, particularly hacktivist and other political technologies exported across cultural lines. She's an authority on DDoS. Dan Whaley. Dan Whaley is a coder and entrepreneur who created the first online travel reservation company in the U.S. back in mid-90s. Uh, it was titled ITN slash Get There. Uh, Dan knows how to write the code, launch the business, and guide the long-term technical and product vision. When he sold Get There... Uh, in 2000, had nearly 600 employees and was pro uh, processing, he says, approximately 50% of the Internet travel uh, business. More recently, Dan is a co-founder of Hypothesis, uh, an open source platform for the collaborative evaluation of information. He just had a big conference out in San Francisco. Uh, he serves as the director of Sauce Labs, and uh, the leading open source functional testing company and get around a peer-to-peer -peer car sharing company. So he works across lots of different lines. Uh, delightful to see. So uh, I'm going to open up. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Rod. And uh, each person has 10 minutes. And the rules are 10 minutes, up to 10 minutes, less fewer is fine. Uh, and then we'll have a short conversation and open it up to discussions. Ron. All right, thanks a lot, Jim. Uh, can we have some slides? Great. 
All right, I briefly would like to have, uh, present some observations that I had from a few days here and things going on in general. And the first is uh, the impact of art in scholarship, as um, witnessed here and elsewhere, that there is uh, uh, ways of publishing and getting work out there have been greatly uh, shaped by what has uh, come before and is taking place in the art world. This includes moving cinema into the galleries and creating gallery models for digital cinema, uh, which is... Um, also involves creating spatial galleries, virtual galleries, and also the move of film, and I come out of a film studies program, uh, film into video blogs, into Google Maps with video, into peer-to-peer -peer video exchange as rising models of distribution. One of the things that interests me uh, in is how this is impacting research. I'm a director of a program in uh, documentary arts and visual research, and it's been exciting to see the uh, engagement with what we do in art and what's happening in fields like ethnography and uh, digital humanities as one search for, searches for new models of publication. And the gallery and virtual gallery is an interesting rising form. The other part of artistic practice that has really seemed to intersect with scholarship has been in the... Uh, revealing of how we do our work, that is, showing the process of research as a creative one and allowing researchers to embrace and develop creative tools. And this has often led to new forms of collaboration that I want to get to in a moment. A further area that I think is very exciting in the merger of art and scholarship is in output because the publication models today are varied as demonstrated by so many different kinds of papers in this conference. Um, this includes doing work digitally that finds its way back into books, but more often work that finds its way back into books as well as something else, websites, blogs, um, new kinds of interactive video, databases, so on and so forth. The list is enormous. So what we have is ways of working as scholars and artists together, producing works that take on multiple forms, and that's an interesting rising phenomenon of who we are and what we do, um, in that we are inevitably many things at once. One of the exciting aspects of this is that it's led to new kinds of collaborations. The works I've been showing here outside have involved collaborators with writers, poets, and coders, including Nick Mumford, Scott Retberg, and I've worked with various others, other writers, artists, and scholars in my work. And um, I've also worked with scholars and artists to put together writing collaborations. Uh, Jim mentioned the book Switching Codes with Chicago, which is a discussion between writers, artists, and scholars. And it, it too, was a kind of experiment, trying to create a book stage by stage, step by step, um, through a kind of electronic exchange leading to response to response to response upon different people's ideas um, and writing as an electronic collaboration leads to inevitably other kinds of outputs. And again, we move into artistic spaces, into gameplay. Eric Zimmerman created a game in response to the essays, into fiction. Richard Powers created a fiction in response to the essays. Art and visual research merge. Um, 
I'm also have been interested in how this has led to the rise of new spaces of scholarship uh, in creative environments, that is, the recognition that certain kinds of research and the exchange of ideas need artistic output to develop. So institutions that do not have, say, creative programs like UPenn or, um, have a need for program, uh, spaces like the Kelly Writers' House, and that kind of need is expressed through a rethinking now, I find, with humanity centers. I've been part of a digital humanities uh, group at Temple trying to define what a digital humanities program would look like currently in their setup, and it seems impossible to imagine it without an artistic space, a creative lab. Mm. And I think that's part of a sign of our times and an interesting point of conversation. Um, lastly, I've observed many papers here and at Haystack last week dealing with questions of memory, history, and identity, and what are they in this current age? Um, the notion of evidence is very elusive. It's hard to pin down what people think, where they come from, what pe where, where people's stories fit in the, in the mess of material, and that's also very exciting because history gets to be reimagined in new ways. And to engage that question, I'd like to read a short excerpt, uh, just a couple paragraphs from Richard Power's contribution to Twitching Codes. The story is about a boy who whose life is shaped by his interaction with the internet and essentially with his interaction with all the ideas in that book. And I'm going to pick it up as a guy is becoming, the boy is becoming 60. The boy's life, quote, from about the age 60 on, will be tagged and taxonomied by an automated program capable of trawling the boy's every recorded experience and determining its dominant narrative from out of a few hundred narratives that have been determined to exist. The story, underwriting the boy's entire life, will turn out to be, quote, the hero goes on a journey, dot, dot, dot. When he reaches 70, the boy becomes convinced that his entire life is another person's statistical speculation. He, but he's never been able to prove this definitely, the boy's life can, in fact, be accidentally generated from the random page hits produced when a real semantic ontology builder, roughly the boy's age, initiates a search while researching his own autobiography. I'm going to cut ahead. The boy's last hospital bed is fitted out with a visual browser that will allow him to travel anywhere, anytime, at any speed and resolution in the guise and temperament of anyone with all the appropriate memories invoked and re-experienced. This boy dies at the age of 98 in a world of endless free creativity, insight, and gratification that has largely gotten away from him. On his death, a handful of social networks will dynamically generate several thousand obituaries for the boy customized to fit the individual retrievers. These obituaries will be, on average, about 55% accurate. Some years later, another boy will run the boy's entire life over again in silico based on the ex, uh, extrapolations from the semi-accurate data. In this digitally restored life, the simulated boy will experience three scattered moments when he feels the infinite odds against any existence at all. Okay, those are my points for our talk. Can I ask one question? Um, uh, Rod, could you uh, maybe say a little bit about art and surveillance? Uh, what, uh, how do you see those two ideas uh, or practices coming together? Art and surveillance. Yes. Um, 
the yesterday's panel to, to refer to panels that we've been having with. We uh, had a presentation on hacking surveillance cameras, yeah, yeah. for one, and the the um, which is getting in at the root root source of material. Mm -hmm. um, the turning the cameras back on environments is something I've been very interested in, and you see, I really appreciate in the works of people like Trevor Paglin, mm -hmm. the uh, revealing the, the, the people who control the cameras as being s objects of observation also, the turning cam cameras upon the black spots of maps, the spaces we can't go. Um, and part of that, for what I see, is uh, the art practice is taking things on the ground into places where we can't go. The project I'm working on right now, which is Poxy City and Estuary, which gets shown at the Chemical Heritage Foundation next month, involves uh, kayaking along the coast of corporations mm -hmm. along the Delaware River that can't be accessed by foot to film, record, post, and uh, visualize them in vast topographies uh, to engage questions of mm -hmm. climate change. It takes having feet on the ground labs where they can process places to put the stuff concretely into action mm -hmm. to read it, to speak back to a virtual world. And that's the engagement of art is it's mm -hmm. still a practice. There's still artists in artistic spaces. And what I love is the way we're finding mm -hmm. environments to reveal those actual labs, galleries, mm -hmm. where the, the line between the virtual and the actual is, is blurred. Mm -hmm. It's one and the same. Beautiful. Excellent. We'll have more questions later. Um, so uh, next we have uh, Theo Hub. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Thanks to the organizers here. Again, it has, it has been a very stimulating and inspiring MIT conference. And again, the egalitarian design principles, which David mentioned at the beginning, worked out well in my view, and I think in those of many other too bringing together junior and senior researchers as well as media producers, artists, and entrepreneurs enables spaces for fruitful discussions and meaningful encounters. And uh, having said this, I want to underline that this is especially important for the PhD candidates and emerging researchers. So the point that it's free, that's a crucial point. Um, and also for us, as you may have noticed, I'm not here alone. I'm to here together with 12 students and four colleagues from different subjects, not just from education, from ethnology, German studies, philosophy, linguistics, media studies, and also educational studies. So you see the importance of it. Um, and maybe I should add uh, my first Media and Transition Conference is way back now. It was in 2002 uh, when it, uh, the topic was about globalization and convergence. Um, I was on the Global Media Generations panel, uh, which has been organized by Ingrid Volkmar, and also the Global Media Generations project has been organized by Ingrid Volkmar, and that was one of my uh, most important experiences in my academic socialization, so to say. So I want to underline this uh, as a start for this um, uh, view now on this conference. What did I observe now this time? Um, I want to point out a few themes and hope, hopefully I can, I'm able to sum it up in these few minutes. Already in the first plenary session, a keyword played an important role, a keyword that is at the heart of the conference topic, um, namely sharing. And um, 
This um, keyword um, doesn't show up in handbooks, in recent handbooks, but it's all over the place of importance um, for this private-public dynamics. It's a constitutive factor. And uh, I think we have to further ask us how we talk about sharing and uh, what are not only the basic meanings of it and the current use, but also the new forms and the coming together of moral, communicative, and distributive meaning, meanings of sharing. Um, the, in this context, um, another thread of the conference um, is importance, and I'm thinking of the work of algorithms here. Um, in the session on social media platforms between private, public, and commercial space, um, this topic um, showed up, and also in, in other panels too. And I think there are four aspects relevant. One is how do we understand the algorithms or conceptualize them as procedures for calculation, as institutions, and it was named as narration, as phantoms, as actors, um, and other concepts. Um, I think we have to sort out this um, and um, Talton, uh, Gillespie, and uh, Nick Siever provided valuable insights uh, for this discussion. And uh, one thread that is especially important also for educationalists is the question of the data literacy in there. Well, not only for educators, but also for us as researchers and producers. Um, so is, what's the relation of media literacy, numeracy, uh, and data literacy in this context? And is it about literacy or is it uh, partly about mathematics? Kelly Gates reminded us of, I would call it, situational gap. Uh, so if you are really competent uh, in dealing with algorithms and data, that doesn't mean that you have a kind of a situational and context sensitivity um, in dealing with the things. So that's, an, that's another issue we have to be aware of. Another question is, which struck me in this context, what are the relations of institutions and social network sites? BBC guidelines have been mentioned and pointed out as an example for good practices. The journalist as a public professional versus the public individual producing also. That arises a question and more questions about the relation of amateurs, semi-professionals, and professionals in the various fields. Um, we can't be professionals in all these respects, um, not even as researchers. And um, I think we, we have to be aware of this and sort it out. And also maybe reread Willem Flusser's notion on the society of the programmers versus the programmed, um, you might remember. Furthermore, in this context, notion of media activism, social activism, and social media activism played a role. Uh, Stephen Humer used the phrase from observation to intervention, but he used it in a context of a 3.6 million um, MISPEL project, I think was the name, which is being run by, in collaboration with police, police agencies. And that's quite in contrast to the case studies regarding Tunis, Thomas Pearl provided, and examples uh, Cristobal Garcia and Henry Jenkins discussed. And 
in this context, both network analysis and qualitative in-depth studies uh, let us better understand the political motivations of activist approaches. But um, the other side, the procedures and the processes of normalization uh, have not been discussed intensively. I think we should put a finger on that too. Another point that I think um, important um, uh, were the shifts uh, Jose van Dijk pointed out. There were three main shifts she presented. It was the one from participatory to connective culture, from informal to more formal settings, for example, when Facebook news show up in newspapers, and from social networks to commercial data firms. So the new ways of monetizing connectivity uh, based on these dynamics, um, they, they meet somehow with what, what Wolfgang Sützel took as a start when he quoted the SEBIT, the German exhibition, the biggest uh, computer exhibition in Germany, uh, which takes place every year, about share economy as hottest topic. These are issues um, which have to be considered more in-depth, especially also looking at the interplay of symbolic, cultural, financial, informational, and other forms of capital. Um, Another point uh, we learned, when I think back to the last MIT conferences, I think we learned a lot about surveillance. We have more differentiated views now, and um, methodologies, as Göran Bolin pointed out, that fit better to the uh, topic. Um, but there were aspects, um, I think, they, they came too short, or they were not um, discussed intensively enough, and those regarded the biopolitical aspects. Um, Kelly Gates uh, talked about um, the, there was some one point, that I don't find the notion now, um, about the, 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 what was it? Um, it was a, a microbiopolitical uh, theme she mentioned, and there were some other um, body-related topics. I couldn't attend those panels, uh, those on uh, food and on online sexualities. But to look at it from a more abstract point of view, the computerization of life and the constructing beings according to the science or design principle, um, they have not been discussed intensively so far. So if, if I sum up and um, bear in mind the modern understandings of the public, public life and the role of political awareness and reasoning, the new media constellations which enable new media dynamics and new interplays of liberal, individualistic and Hegelian communitarian threats of divine, defining privateness, um, I think we are coming to a point where we have to rethink enlightenment. It's uh, no less topic than that. It's a rather big topic. And when I um, think of the work of Yehuda Elkanah, for example, which uh, reminds us of a few aspects of how such a thinking might look like, he's talking about guidelines uh, we have inherited from the Enlightenment tradition, which we might abandon, such as um, the quest for universal theories, which is uh, a problematic one, most of us would agree. Context-free or absolute truth thinking, I think 
almost nobody would agree on that today here. And um, also the epistemic um, approaches um, in, in a non-dialectical way, not in a goal-oriented uh, goal dialectical way thinking. And um, the sharp distinctions of the private public, the mind-body, um, religion, and secular and Western <coughs> and non-Western thoughts. So these are, there are more aspects on that, but I think we have to go more in-depth into that thinking, especially in view of the transnational, the trans and the cross-medial, the intermedial, the transcultural dynamics, and how can we do research between regional, national spheres and moving cultures, looking at mobility as a theme and networked spaces. Um, and one of the proposals for future topics, um, I briefly discussed it with Kurt Fendt, um, might be the relation or, or just the, the, the keywords data, tools, and knowledge organization. Because in those come the, the, the new perspectives together where not only the, um, what it's, uh, not the, the prosumers and the media users um, um, make use of tools which you couldn't do before. There is a new layer of tools. So let me just add um, two or three sentences about what I missed, what did I missed at this conference. And I missed, um, let's say, two or three talks about uh, historically informed systematic uh, analysis of key concepts, like the space, sphere, and realm. I think there is sometimes a blurring between these concepts or similar concepts, or also the distinction between the real world and the digital world. I think it's a problematic distinction. Uh, the way it's been made, there's more work to be done on that. And also on methodological in-depth argumentations, um, as explicit descriptions of our research methods, um, where especially when hermeneutics meets quantitative research and algorithms again. So the circle is being closed, though, and uh, this is uh, an interesting topic. And last but not least, I missed voices from some of, of, of other continents, African voices. We had um, voices from Asia, not many. We had some voices from Latin America, but um, it's, a, it's a kind of a bias we had during the conference, and maybe we should keep an eye on that as well. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you. Molly? Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Molly Sauter. Um, as Jim mentioned, I'm part of the Comparative Media Studies program here, and I'm also part of the Center for Civic Media, and I'm very happy to be part of this final summing up panel. Uh, one thing that I've been noticing a lot in what we've talked about, and, and this is sort of expected when we talk about private and public spaces, is we end up talking a lot about identity and mediations of identity and creations of identity and co-option and repurposing. And this is a fascinating and awesome discussion, and I'm so happy that we had so many panels dealing with these very thorny and dense issues. Um, but something that I'm interested in is the identity of the concept of presence as contrasted to the concept of identity. Um, as Jim mentioned, I recently finished, yay, my master's thesis on um, distributed denial of service, thank you, uh, as an activist and political tactic. And this is one of those, it's an attempt to push collective action into the online space and manifest the theories and practice of collective action in an online environment 
which is very heavily reliant on the idea of presence as opposed to the idea of identity. A collective action is made out of the presence of many people, not necessarily their discrete identities being manifested and performed. In fact, many aspects of our sort of government and political system are based on ideas of presence. Anonymous voting is not based on identity of the individual voter. It's based on the concept of communal presence of these voters coming together. So when we think about the ways in which the political future of the internet is going, I'm interested in these questions of how presence will manifest online and ways in which we can encourage the manifestations of presence as opposed to a almost single-minded emphasis on identity and performative and collected identity and sort of co-opted and constructed identity, even though that's totally awesome as well. Um, I have some questions coming out of that, those sort of thoughts that I've had, and I do not have answers for this, um, and I'd be very much interested in hearing what everyone else has to say and thinks about this topic. Um, For instance, I'm interested in how concepts of privacy and anonymized data fit into constructions of presence and how we use anonymized data both sort of in a corporate and business sense, in an educational sense, as well as in a governmental and political sense to bring this concept into reality as opposed to just sort of leaving it as a theoretical concept. So so the privacy specialists in the room, I'd be very interested in in hearing your thoughts on how that feeds into this concept of presence. Um, another, Another aspect of that is the Internet of Things. When we, as we move into sensor-driven homes, as we move into collective, collected and connected inanimate objects, how does that impact both our, our concept of individual human presence and as if you've been in the back channel recently, you have seen inanimate objects coming to life and interacting with the conference as well. And so the, in that way, that's also fun to think about. Um, that was a joke. You can laugh. Um, And we've also seen ways in which other people will attach themselves to the active and identified participation of others in a political sense. We saw in one of the first panels um, Ethan Zuckerman and uh, Nancy Bame both talking about ways in which the collected presence of many people inserting themselves into other people's lives through specific channels, such as fan mailing lists when Nancy Bain was talking about musicians and their interactions with fans, or when Ethan was talking about the use of music video remixes and the sort of adaptation of Gangnam Style to serve different political purposes, those both have the identities of the artists and the particular activists attached to them, but they also have the presence that they're representing. In so much as they are geographically tied memes, they are representing the presence of many more people than were present in the video. So in this way, we have other presences being represented by the identities of active participants. And I'm interested in picking that apart as well. And that's actually pretty much all I have written down right now. <laughs> so. Excellent. Thank you, Molly. Uh, why don't we just go right on to Dan, and then we'll come back for questions. Dan. Okay. Okay, um, intimidating up here uh, summing up a conference in a field which I know nothing about, for which I lack uh, the vocabulary in front of a hundred or so of some of the smartest people that I've met. So uh, what you'll get here is is an outsider's perspective um, of uh, 
what I saw and and how that fits um, into what I'm involved in, what I'm working on. First, I want to just tell you how useful um, this weekend has been for me. My project, Hypothesis, is one of several represented actually here in the room, um, like Curtin Jamie's uh, annotation studio here at MIT and Paolo's uh, Domeo project at Harvard, which are working collaboratively to implement a new annotated layer over all the world's knowledge based on an emerging W3 uh, standard called open annotation. So the goal here is to preserve for all time the conversations about knowledge itself. There's a lot of design considerations, and many of them turn around exactly the same kind of considerations all of you have been discussing this weekend. So thank you. And okay, well, now I know that there are actually people whose jobs it is to sit around and watch Harlem Shake videos all day. That's um, pretty awesome. Get paid for it. <laughs> um, so as I've spent the last couple of days sweating bullets wondering uh, how I'm actually going to sum this up. In a conference with a scope as broad as this one, even though ostensibly there's a focus here around the interplay and the tension between the public and the private selves, it's been useful for me to kind of try to think through all this through a frame. So here's what I came up with. We're all neurons in the society of the mind, seven billion strong each of us increasingly in constant communication with hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of others. Media in transition, it's that synaptic interface that's in transition between us all. Ever since Morse first tapped out what hath God wrought 169 years ago, we've been on this rapidly increasing and escalating effort to reinvent everything. The telephone, email, web, the smartphone, now Google Glass, and Lord knows what's next. The increasing spreadability of media, memes, and the breadcrumb trails of our digital selves represents that increasing metabolism of our social mind. As the rate of spreadability increases, we increasingly synchronize with each other. The post office gave us spreadability on the order of months, then weeks and days. Now we have spreadability on the order of seconds in incredibly rich and textured ways. I think our job here, though, is not just to reflect on the world the way it is, but to extrapolate. What does our world look like in a hundred years or a thousand? Where are we headed as a species? Really, this isn't so much an exercise in prediction as it is in asking, what do we want? And how are we going to get there? What is breathtaking, frightening, really, is like Jonathan Zittrain pointed out yesterday, that every point on the curve is the inflection point. And the mild acceleration we're seeing now is just the foreplay for the main act. We are fully in the middle of the social singularity right now as we increasingly collaborate and share knowledge, code, experience, even our homes and cars and miscellaneous physical objects. Increasingly, this shift towards the public spectrum, which is just really shorthand for the merging as a single organism, Cultural norms are being aligned, realigned, sometimes with extraordinary pyrotechnics, for instance, through the acts of groups like Femin. So I'll share two views here, uh, one dystopic and one utopic. So Nick asked in the first day whether this was a rehearsal for the Panopticon, but I'd argue with you that the Panopticon is already here. I don't know how many of you guys saw Glenn, uh, Glenn Greenwald's piece yesterday in The Guardian, um, 
but kind of pointing out what we pretty much already knew anyway, which is that the FBI is actually not just listening to all the conversations, but actually recording them and storing them all forever. So that um, they're actually going back and listening to the conversations that um, the Boston bomber had with his wife before the event actually happened. That's pretty extraordinary. Um, it isn't really news. I mean, we kind of already knew if you paid attention to Mark Klein and um, the wiring closet in eight, at the AT&T building in San Francisco, um, that all that stuff was pretty much happening already, and it probably wasn't too hard for us to uh, imagine um, uh, what was going on beyond that. So oversharing, yeah, you could say that, but maybe it should have been called overstoring. The increasing move to telemetry that Jonathan suggested, well, it's, it's already here. Kelly yesterday mentioned that her student asked her, is more surveillance even possible? And if so, what would it look like? Sure, those gigapixel cameras will help, but it's not really a step function change in what was essentially complete awareness already. The future questions revolve not so much around the technology of surveillance, but on the fight for the last strongholds of our freedoms to think and act as relatively free those still surveilled citizens. Well, that's pretty easy to imagine, that total surveillance. I mean, we've already been given the blueprint for total information awareness. Take all your phone calls, texts, emails, combine them with Facebook, all your financial transactions, put them in a pot and stir. In San Francisco, I share uh, an office with a startup called Kuzu, um, which is trying to get the world to install um, webcams uh, at, on every street corner out of every window um, so that anywhere you are in your town you can click uh, on, a, on a live camera and actually see what's going happening uh, out that window and they seem to be um, having some success at that. So this is um, the panopticon uh, on steroids. The corporation and the state have merged not just through the revolving door but intimately and continuously we know that the banks were meeting directly with the FBI now all through the Occupy protests and sharing intimate details. But despite this gloomy preamble, I'm actually an optimist. The seeds of the revolution have already been sown. Tor, BitTorrent, WikiLeaks, P2P DNS, CryptoCat, Anonymous, the Pirate Bay, Bitcoin, maybe even Mega, and most importantly, the Internet itself. And yeah, even projects like Cody Wilson's 3D printing of guns give me hope, not because I want more guns, but because it's important that we continue to demonstrate that these counterpublics can continue to exist. What does our thousand-year time frame look like if surveillance and the corporate state win, if the noose increasingly tightens around the digital counterpublics we have, the new insurgents? As Cristobal put it yesterday, the new decentralized, open, liquid, civic, political forms of engagement are the ones that represent the potential for creative society moving forward. There is no choice. We must win. Our secret weapon lies in our ability to imagine how things could be better and to shape the future the way that we want. Even with the extraordinary forces that seem to have pre preempted and constrained much of the bits of unsurveilled freedom we thought we might have had left, the direction towards openness is an incredibly powerful one. And the future for us, um, I hope. So I'm glad that there are forums like this one that are exploring these ideas with as much uh, integrity as you guys have and, and hope to come back in the future. Excellent. Thank you.
Okay, so uh, before we go out to uh, audience questions, I want to ask a couple. Uh, one of the things that it seemed to me that uh, has uh, the conference has sort of bounced back and forth between a kind of a deterministic sense of uh, some of the technologies we're talking about and then a sort of uh, open behavioralist sense of you know, how, how humans are actors within these systems. And so I'm, uh, we have four different people working in four uh, quite different sectors. So what I would like to ask you to comment on is uh, what you see as one or two primary human responsibilities that, from your point of view, bear on the issues of surveillance, uh, oversharing, and counterpublics. So I would like to just invite you to make some comments uh, from your point of view on just where you see human agency and responsibility coming down in these reflective, in these particular areas. Ron? Um, well, in my area of documentary arts and uh, visual research, we were particularly interested in the topic of visual evidence. And this gets, I think, also to this idea of presence versus identity, that one, uh, that's the agenda to uh, record and put up the evidence of what happens um, is what forms a discourse, but that evidence, from an artistic point of view, it has to be drawn out images. Uh, to, be po to pose questions, you have to focus uh, on what the images actually say and get in into the images, as it were, to make the images speak richly. Um, so on the one hand, there is a, the ethics. Uh, I just did an, art, an essay in last month's documentary studies journal on ethics as ethics of participation and presence. But that's also a is about a... a uh, uh, a, a grasping of the tools of, of making the evidence speak, and that we have an ethics involved in, le in learning what we're saying with what we say, because there's a proliferation of putting stuff up, a pr proliferation of things that take on presence, um, and at, without the discourse in which they have context. And that's a very important part of gaining agency is, is construction of context, and that's where creating the bridges that Theo talks about, creating the presence, that presence is grounded in places, that is, not necessarily physical places, but places of discourse. It gives it a um, agency. Without presence having context, it doesn't have agency. And that's where these, the tools mix with the construction, what visual evidence actually is for a visual researcher and for other people who put material out in the world to speak about those topics. You? Yeah. Well, the simple answer would be education. <laughs> but as you that's what I can agree on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so far, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as you might know, the, there is a term in in the German language uh, that's named Bildung, um, mm -hmm. which is not um, easily to be translated mm -hmm. uh, into other languages. Uh, it has been translated into Norwegian um, and some other cases, mm -hmm. and I think that. One of the core differences between the, the neoliberal concepts of education and, and those other concepts of education, in including something like personal developments, including like 
issues like self-competence or especially self-determined uh, procedures. That's one of the, the issues in there. Not just self-organized, as we could learn from, from Maturana and others, um, or self-referential uh, procedures, as we learned it from systems theory uh, and in constructivist concepts, but also this self-determination. We have to focus on that um, and to enable spaces in how far this works out uh, in flexible ways and uh, in how far it's just a, a new way of, um, of, in Foucauldian terms, one would uh, name re-governmentalization of the thing to be criticized, on the other hand. So that, that's, a, that's a kind of a circular thinking um, because of whatever you are uh, promoting in the name of education, uh, I always remind of the sentence of my uh, dear colleague Sepp Mitterer in Klagenfurt, um, who says, education towards the truth is always education towards the truth of the educator. Mm -hmm. So no matter if you're talking about the enabling spaces, if you're talking about certain goal-oriented uh, or self-organized uh, organized procedures, I think um, we have to enhance this thinking about... Um, um, education in media anthropological terms and be aware of co-evolutionary processes which took place through, through centuries. You know, it's, it's, um, we forgot about uh, the mediation um, procedures. Media have been the blind spot uh, so far and we are trying to put the finger on it in conferences like this. And um, if you look at uh, what hap what's happening in schools, it's, it's mostly about, um, I would say, Jeanette Böhme talked about mo schools as monomedial provinces, for example, or, or a literary counterculture. Um, and that's, that's not the counterculture with the future, you know, based on, on, on literacy concepts uh, from, uh, from the Gutenberg galaxies. You know. We need to go in-depth into the work of algorithms. We need to go in-depth of the biological procedures. And also, we have to learn more about um, uh, synthetic uh, biologies, um, what the folks um, like Craig Wenter and others are doing, and to better understand um, the, the evolutionary procedures in cultural, biological, technical, social terms. And um, as far as, as we can learn something about that and, and create action spaces within, um, we, we have, a, I think, better options to deal with issues like surveillance on different levels and, um, and to act as, um, as uh, politically aware uh, citizens at the same time. So the question is, what are the primary human responsibilities in the face of Surveillance, Some of these issues, yeah, and, and they, the role of human agency, because okay. sometimes we over we overstress the uh, technical, and you know, we forget about the fact that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think the the answer, at least to the question of the what is the primary human response or the role of agency in the face of surveillance, is parallel and balanced awareness of the surveillance that is present, and when necessary direct confrontation or interaction with that surveillance system. Mm -hmm. And you can interpret that to mean 
the really interesting German game that involved directly attacking uh, CCTV cameras in the subway system and around the city of Berlin, which was kind of awesome, and I don't remember what it was called. Um, you can take that to mean direct interaction through approved channels with state governments or corporations who are engaging in surveillance. Um, but I think of primary importance is parallel awareness that grows in scale with the awareness of the surveilling entity, mostly. Okay. Um, so I guess my, uh, obviously, uh, great summaries there. I think my only comment is just to remember that we still have the ability to act, and therefore we have the responsibility to. Um, and uh, I think for me the key is to force things out into the open. That's really, I think, the easiest way for this kind of surveillance apparatus to exist is um, that a lot of it is so secret um, and so unknown in terms of uh, what liberties are uh, even being taken. So I, you know, I, think, um, I think we're moving in the right direction, but we need to keep going. Uh, another one of the topics that's uh, been wrestled with here is uh, counterpublics. Uh, we are sort of sorting through concepts. Are they? Is this a necessary concept? Uh, is this different from counterculture? Uh, how how is this uh, con- way of uh, approaching the public sphere useful? And so, again, since we have a nice separation of uh, areas of expertise here, I would like to ask you to comment on how counterpublics, from your point of view, uh, offer opportunities, uh, whether it's entrepreneurial opportunities or whether it's opportunities on the Internet, uh, education, or artistic spheres. Uh, Could you say a few words about... uh, this concept uh, from your points of view here. Why don't we start mm-hmm. with you, Dan? I would say <laughs> counterpublics are the um, uh, opportunities out there because they're, by definition, the ones that stand in opposition um, and indifference to the thing that came before them. So they're the things that are ripe to engage with if you want to disrupt um, in uh, what's come before, um, almost by definition. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, we get more of them. I, I, I wonder sometimes if we're going to start having a deficit of counterpublics if um, some of the, the uh, ones that have existed with us as, as uh, partners for so long um, start to fall away. Like, um, you know, the, um, uh, uh, you know, queer community or... Um, you know, minorities of different types or, um, um, you know, even potentially uh, the um, surveillance state of somehow we managed to start to peel back um, some of the forces that it's got. I mean, humans love to exist in in conflict. Um, It's what we uh, write stories about and make movies about. So hopefully uh, we continue to have some um, strong supply of counterpublics without suffering the... uh, um, you know, the net baggage that comes along with them, I guess. I think, so I agree that counterpublics are usually the, one of the primary sites of innovation 
and what I'm primarily concerned about, um, another one of my research focuses is hacker culture in general, sort of writ large. And something that I see a lot in that space is the persistent criminalization of that particular counterpublic um, by various states and various uh, dominant cultures in general. So I take your point that we are losing many of these these very established counterpublics, though not, I think, by subsumation into the mainstream culture. I think we are losing them via active, definite, and sure actions by people in power to drive out or make undesirable certain counterpublics, which are, in fact, very useful and very interesting and should be like celebrated and maintained and considered like as interesting and awesome as they are. But that, but as they are in opposition to many of the interests of state powers and corporate powers in particular, I worry that they may be driven out of existence. Yeah. Well, big question. Um, let me think of different levels uh, and differentiate some aspects of it. On an institutional level, if you think of education and the counterpublic, there are various projects um, on, on the level of magazines or web platforms, initiatives. Sometimes they don't live very long, sometimes they, they stay for longer, but for sure it's, it's one um, goal and, and, and one valuable aspect of this debate to encourage these projects and uh, keep them alive as good as possible. Um, Valentin Danda, for example, made it, mentioned the, the free radio station uh, we have in Innsbruck, one of many around the globe. Um, and uh, it's, it's one project that, that gives voice to various group within town, groups within town um, who normally wouldn't be as present as they are this way. So that, that's one level of, of the thing. The other one is maybe a structural one. If you're thinking of the tools being used, um, how, how can this be encouraged? Um, how do we think about the free, libre, open source software in educational contexts and create um, spaces um, and encourage uh, making use of medial forms that may end up or not in a, in a smaller or larger counterpublic to some extent? And I think to, to create an awareness about that is, a, is something... Um, where this concept can be helpful and offer opportunities uh, at the same time. If you look more on a didactical level, um, um, I, I give an example. School, schools could learn a lot from media activists and also from, from the creative uh, producers uh, on the one hand. But let's, let's uh, just stay a moment with media activists. Um, if you look at the curricula uh, being promoted, then you see that, for example, action learning or action-oriented media pedagogy uh, is being promoted all over the place. But uh, if you look at it, how it's done, it's very limited. It's, it's like self-chained, the, the forms are being done. There is no, no uh, Google Eats itself project which comes out of a school normally, yeah? but it could come out of, a, of a just a, it was a few guys that run that project. Yeah? Or if you look at the the nice uh, video clip uh, prank on a movie star uh, where uh, young folks uh, played back um, this, uh, this um, call center 
habits, uh, in how they, they are dealing with you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a great intervention. Again, it's an activist project, and it's not part of an action learning project in an institutionalized context. Mm -hmm. So why not think about these boundaries, about these borders, stretch them, um, create new spaces, uh, and therefore encourage counterpubbling. It's not always the loud voices uh, that, that uh, constitute the counterpubbling. Sometimes silent voices too um, that need a space. So I think that um, that offers at least some steps um, uh, towards um, in the interesting and wishful developments. Yeah, I actually wanted to build almost directly on your discussion, Theo, <laughs> because um, <coughs> the one of the things I've Interesting, to, interesting topic for us to take on in the encounter publics is uh, encounter publics within our own institutions, that our disciplines are uh, grounded in a, such a 19th century model of education. And as I pr propose, art models and interdisciplinary models of engagement, it's also about how do we create our own public counter publics in our institutions. And um, I, my own feeling is that's the only way to enable our institutions to survive in the face of move to electronic education and the, uh, the dissolution of the classroom for corporate or money-making reasons, um, that there requires some other kind of reinvention from within. And part of that is reinventing disciplinary lines, which is first counter-publics is about translating between publics and new, pu new groups forming new languages, new terms, and taking over old terms. And that also means taking over the discipline, disciplinary lines that those terms prop up. So engaging in counter-publics within our own institutions is, uh, suddenly feels a lot riskier because it's about whether or not our institutions even really exist if we let that happen from within, which is very exciting <laughs> as to what comes next. Uh, what would our own public counterpublics look like, and what institute? What would they invent if they uh, to replace the institutions that we currently or many of us work in? Uh, so we might wish to turn this question upon ourselves and think about reinvention um, from within, also. Excellent. Well, I think uh, it's time to open up for questions from the audience. Uh, all of you, and uh, your thoughts, reflections on some of the topics we've been talking about, where you think these topics are headed, uh, and uh, the future of uh, surveillance. Uh, if, you're, if you have a question, if you could just uh, uh, go up to one of the speakers, uh, and it'd be nice if you just say something about who you are. <coughs> I'm a shorter person than this microphone is. Um, my, on my birth certificate, actually, I found out at age 18, my name is not Mary, my first part, but it's Merrily, like in Row, 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 Your Boat. And gently down the stream of life, with blind curves, with turnovers, with rapids, with beautiful sunsets or whatever reflections. Very good metaphor, river, stream. Gently down the stream, merrily, do it happily. Sanskrit word for joyful effort, virya, V-I-R-Y-A. And um, when we have that spark, it helps us keep on carrying on. So at birth, I realized when I saw the photostat of my certificate, birth certificate when I had need for my first passport that 
there, my first name was Merrily. And there, in the, the first few seconds of being born, I was given the mission to be happy, to, to spread happy. And uh, friends have automatically, sporadically called me Mary, like Merry Christmas, happy. There's a point to this. Uh, so do you, do you have a question? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I try and spread, and I have for 40 years, um, some of the, the good news. Um, College Joy Patrol. Uh, people at CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, such as Natalie Jeremjenko. There, you can look at resources on the net from centers, such as MIT and, and, and other universities. There are many, many, many bright spots, but they're forgotten. You look at the conference as a resource for the names of the speakers and the topics, and you look a little further when you can. So one of them is Natalie Jeremjenko as a computer scientist and activist, one example that she presented here was, you probably have seen that little mechanical do- toy dog, and she had hers crushed by the airline stewardess, excuse me, attendant, uh, whatever, <laughs> um, on her way to the media lab for one of the speaker talks. Uh, it, here and also RISD has a very good um, art and activism. So she's taking her, her knowledge and skill in her technical area and her activism, and she's addressing some of that in smaller projects, but then she knows how to leverage and get it out, the word out. So one is a counter. Uh, you shoot up a rocket. It has a few seconds of film, film of the crowd, the real size of the crowd that's protesting the presence you talk about that's so important. That's misreported so often. So then the, the, the little, little uh, airplane crashes and burns. It's little. <laughs> but she's got the numbers to, to um, ju- justify, to prove that there are a sizable number. Uh, another one is um, Germany. Uh, the uh, mall in Munich uh, recently is, was making its rounds and, and the flash mob. And it was uh, an upscale mall. It is upscale. still available. I mean, it's, it's just a few weeks ago. And excuse me. So the point is there is the youth are taking over and planning for weeks, choreographing the sweepers, the cleaners. Uh, it starts with just one guy standing on, standing up next to an ash can in the mall, and, and it's a drum to him, and he's rapping. And then guess what? You know that another another rap is a couple. But then, and you're looking at the people in the mall. They're all ages, all more upscale in terms of economics. But um, they're they're like, should I go? Or but there's somebody else over there that's <laughs> piping up. Well, uh, you know what's going on here? And it, and it works. That's creativity in the art kind of thing. So it can be the performance art, creativity element can instill vitality across the ages. Half of the people there, as it turns out of the people that were supposedly working as jobs there were not. This was a, this was a, a decision, and it worked. Okay. I'm not sure there was a question in there, but thank you. Can you, share, can you each of those panels, share one other site that excited them in, in a way that is, you know, uh, artistic, creative, uh, spreads the message. Uh, you know, an older one might be billionaires for Bush. You know, they got into ritzy places and then they'd roll out, you know, a sign that would be, and they'd have the helicopter ready for the Kodak moment, that kind of thing. And could you each, each one of you just give me one? Uh, a website. You want a them web- to share a, 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 a YouTube, a website, a, an example of where art and creativity and activism 
pull together and uh, there's a message out there and it's not threatening and it's not reactionary. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> art and activism uh, being pulled together in a YouTube uh, clip of some sort that uh, yeah. offers some kind of optimistic uh, outlook. Well, I, I already gave an example. <laughs> Just yeah. search prank on Movistar. Yeah. Moby. Movie star, prank on movie star. It it will show up through the self-fulfilling mm-hmm. Google technology. There's only one. Okay. Hmm? There's only one. I mean, I would. There, two there, 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 there are thousands of these, but yeah. It's it's very easy to find. Okay. Yeah. I think my favorite one recently YouTube video was uh, the Onions awarding Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, the, the CIA awards Mark Zuckerberg the, uh, the Medal, Presidential Medal of Freedom or something like that for, uh, for having created Facebook. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ethan Zuckerman gave a great talk on the first day of the conference about uh, Gangnam Style and the ways in which that particular music video has been reappropriated by activist groups internationally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just an article that included a discussion of um, MIT's Nittensoni doing work in the Gaza Strip with children, teaching them to use oh, yeah. uh, videos and um, record stories. And one of the lessons of that is that you, know, you have to not only help people have the technology to tell their stories, <laughs> but also help people to um, uh, youth to think about how stories work and make that happen. And so I think Voices from Gaza is the link to that. Yeah, Nitten is doing important. Nitten was here and then went down to Parsons. Uh, yeah, he's very creative, wonderful work. Yeah, Noel. Uh, Noel Jackson, Literature at MIT. I, I wanted to ask Molly uh, just to expand a little bit more on that yep. provocative claim that a, that a counterpublics might be organized not around categories of exclusion, which tend to center on categories of individual identity, of race, gender, sexual preference, political affiliation, so on, but your category of presence, and, and to maybe ask you and the rest of the panelists to tie that thinking about presence to a category that we heard invoked yesterday in reference to the idea of counterpublics um, through our Gordon's presentation, among others, which is play. So mm-hmm. play, presence, counterpublics, kind of formation of... of um, Oppositional spaces that aren't defined, perhaps in in advance. Could you could you talk a little bit more about what that category means for you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would. So I would define presence as I wrote it down. Um, I really, here I'm defining presence as anonymous or named manifestations of individuals or communities without many of the performative or explicative aspects we associate with online identity. Um, Meaning, not so much that presence can, of, in and of itself, constitute a, a counterpublic, more that presence would be a type of manifestation a counterpublic could take on. It could be a way of, of manifesting itself rather than the presence itself making up the counterpublic. Um, so, in, in many ways, we have, so as was just mentioned, like flash mobs. Are, are actually just a type of imposed presence. Um, rather than the performance of an identity, it is the performance of, of an interruption or, a, or an encapsulation of a, an other into a certain situation. 
um, without the particular aspects of individuality and identity we usually would expect from a cultural counterpublic. Um, so in many so in many ways, play is already mass play is part of is incorporates presence into into its performance in many ways. Um, does that help? Does that answer? Okay, awesome. Maybe um, groups like the Seasteading Institute might be another example of a kind of a counterpublic. So these are everybody probably knows but groups that want to self-organize to explore um, uh, concepts of sovereignty, um, group dynamics, um, kind of in their own spaces on floating um, uh, oil derricks, or I guess there was a group down in Guatemala or El Salvador or something recently that tried to carve out some um, piece of territory there. But that might be kind of an interesting, another interesting example. Uh, state as a counterpublic. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Any other uh, comments here? Maybe just just one sentence. Uh, since you asked for tying together play and presence, and I think um, it's important to be aware of the the aspect of purpose and intention at this point. You know, if you want to create something intentionally in a playful way. Um, then uh, that might collide or, or come in, in a contradictory um, context with a presence or presencing, you know, being there at that very moment. Um, so um, there is a kind of um, limits to purposeful or to make use of playful elements if it's uh, about um, uh, reaching a goal in an educational context, for example. Yeah. Yes. Um, two short questions. I was wondering, being that the internet is the last place you can go that's actually anonymous for us little people in terms of no retaliation or intimidation, what are you doing? That, what are you doing to um, keep that private? So. You know, because people are not products to be sold or bought unless they choose to be. And so, what are you doing to, you know, to keep that private, to keep aggregate information that turns personally identifiable out of the hands of those people so that we can continue to give import, input without intimidation or harassment or, you know, there's so much identity theft and there's so stalking and all kinds of crazy things. So what are you doing for, you know, to keep that strong? And secondly, uh, about the uh, leveling the playing field and, you know, the whole idea of shareware and open courseware, what are you doing to strengthen that for those that want that knowledge and those that, the, like the companies that want people to pay for everything? What are you doing to strengthen the second thing? Thank what are, you. What are we doing personally? Yeah, uh, well, yeah what, what, what's going on, like, in terms of the regulations and laws and things that people are working on or not working on and what you know what are they doing or what should they be doing or how can they do it or are they going to do it yeah it's it's sort of the other part of the conference it's public media private uh we've really really gone through the public uh and but 
privacy and uh, you know it's it's sometimes kind of the default the default is the public but the private is uh, really in some sense uh, something that we all I think you make a wonderful point that we all really value being private and the ability to be private and to maintain that privacy while we are in these very potentially very public spaces so I think that's that's an interesting Dilemma of, so, of sorts, or a, or is it? I don't I'll pick know. Pick this up I, in, in a way. Of thinking, of, thinking of the last question, and it ties into this. And uh, one is a project up here, showing um, Ed Ab- concerns Ed Abbey, who's very um, a prop- uh, supported direct action in the '60s and '70s and environmental issues, and uh, of which, despite many. Uh, um, provocations, pulling up road markers, and so forth. The direct actions did very little to halt the tide of uh, transformation of the American deserts by uh, industrial tourism and other forms of industry. And that, in fact, the things that caused the most effect from what he did was writing and uh, sharing ideas. Um, And to get those out and do that also is tied to institutions of distribution and publication and present getting the word out. And this gets back to the institution issue, which is where I, I really would like to pick up your question because um, we're in an age of sort of uh, breaking down institutions. We you know, I made a provocation about that earlier, but it's in fact the pro- institutions that also protect us. It's the institutions of universities that protect us and help us say things and hold on to um, spaces of discourse, and there's a way in which the tide of anti-institutionalism also, you know, does dovetail with the corporate benefits to it, which is um, that institutions. We also have institutions to protect us, and that there's a great value in that. They just need to be rethought, reimagined, and made ours. Um, and without those institutions, we're also powerless. So institutions have great value but we're not sure what they are in this model. And I think your question shows how, that, how it's hard now for us to pin that down, what institutions do protect, protect you, and what, what are the largest sense of what an institution is in your life in, in this context. I, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but unless you use Tor every time you go online and you roll your own email system, the internet is not anonymous. And you are not anonymous on the internet. I have this really great Chrome add-on called Ghostery, um, where it will show you in this really neat drop-down window all of the trackers that are on every single website you go to. And sometimes there are dozens, and you have to scroll through them to see all of them. Um, The internet is a nest of trackers and identifiers and things that know where you are and remember who you are, even if it's not your name or your address or your email address, and it's just a collection of identifying markers, you can use those to identify, like, personally identifiable information. Or you can um, put blocks. You can do lots of things, but unless you do those every time, and unless you are using Tor every time, people are tracking you. That's just the nature of the online space. Um, there are many groups and mostly civil liberties groups who are working to do various things about this. Actually, we have um, uh, Earhart Grafe, who's sitting up in the back, knows a great deal about privacy online and is 
probably the best person to talk to you about this currently in the room. Um, so, the, so, I heart. <laughs> um, so I would caution you against thinking of the internet as a place of anonymity or using that concept as a sort of pillow to rest your civil liberties on. Because it's not... It's, yeah, you do. You don't have to have your tax return in your computer to have personal information in your computer. I only have my IP address, which is sometimes taken. Which is attached to your, you know, your account with your internet service provider, which is attached to your home address, which is attached to your phone number. It's there. Trust me. Birthday. <laughs> I, w- I would say, though, that even that in terms of the surveillance state, what you have to kind of assume that they are going to get you if they need to, um, that there's still extraordinary utility in having strong uh, models of pseudonymous and anonymous identity because even you know, for the people that might want to take advantage of knowing your identity that don't have those kind of panoptic um, type surveillance capabilities, um, it, does, it, it is a super important and we do need more systems, more infrastructure, more communities that support um, those kinds of, um, of identity systems and don't force, you know, real name strategies and so forth. Well, I think uh, we are almost finished. So uh, unless somebody has some phenomenal suggestion for a topic uh, <laughs> that he or she wishes to share with us, any anyone? Uh, I think we're going to... I think we're going to consider this a wrap. And uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for your continued interest. And we look forward to seeing you in two more years.